So to begin with, um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Matthew uh, Flinders, who's Professor of Parliamentary uh, Government and Governance at the University of uh, Sheffield. Matthew Flinders. So good morning, everybody, and, and thank you, Sam, and, and for your team for organizing this fan fantastic weekend. And the first thing you'll notice, some of you, uh, I spoke to a lady earlier this morning, and uh, she said she'd done a bit of research on the internet about the speakers, and uh, she was surprised to find that I was born in about 1580. Well, of course, you know, I am not that Matthew Flinders, but I am actually related, but we can talk about that later. But in, in some sense, I think there is a, a link, and that's what I want to try and do, draw out some links today, that uh, Matthew Flinders, the, the, the explorer and navigator, the first person to circumnavigate Australia, um, he obviously sailed in some quite treacherous and dangerous waters. And, and standing here today talking about um, politics and money um, and sex, uh, is it, no, there's no sex, sorry, I just said that too again, just to sort of wake you up a bit. But talking about money and politics is itself... Uh, a treacherous affair and I was talking to somebody over breakfast saying how much I'd enjoyed uh, yesterday's discussions and that I, I, I almost felt slightly out of place as a political scientist but also slightly uncomfortable about having to come before you today to talk about such impure issues as as politics and money, such crude things. And, and the person at breakfast said, oh good, you're gonna bring us into the real world. So I'm not sure if I'm gonna do that, but I think it is an, an element of um, our lives and the future of healthcare that we can't really ignore. So um, in a sense, I don't want to, to, to talk for, for too long. Um, I want to kind of cover three things. And what I'm really gonna try and do, if I can, I'll just take my jacket off, is I'm gonna try and make a, a rather quick and very strange argument, because as a, I, 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 as a professor, I'm a bit, bit strange in that I spend very little time in my university office and far too much time uh, in Whitehall and Westminster working for politicians and ministers about how they themselves navigate the challenges that are placed upon them. And as I was listening to these discussions yesterday, it actually made me think that, um, and this is in itself a rather controversial claim, but I think I can at least uh, uh, add some weight to, to, to make a discussion about this. I think there is some similarity between the role of a politician and the role of a doctor or a psychiatrist or a healthcare professional in the 21st century. And what I mean by this is that both roles within society are all about navigating very complex relationships. And they're also, more importantly, often founded on some belief that it's possible to deliver simple solutions to complex problems. Whereas, in fact, often there are no simple solutions to complex problems. So, let me very quickly take you through um, three parts where I'm going to try and drill down from a broad discussion to a very tight discussion um, over, the, over the, just a few minutes. Um, the first thing I would say, and it sounds like a cliche, but I think it's true, that we are living in very strange and troubled times. It's quite mysterious that around the world today, we have more democracies than we've ever had in history. We have the events in uh, uh, North Africa, the Arab Spring. We have people apparently dying, literally dying, for democratic politics. And yet, at the same time that that's happening, 
in those parts of the established world that have enjoyed democracies for some time, we live in a time that is dominated by a debate about why we hate politics or why we hate politicians. This growth of what are often called disaffected Democrats. So within that broader debate, this kind of paradox between a yearning for democracy by some parts of the world and then an apparent rejection of elements of democracy on the other hand is, is an interesting tension which I think we can filter down to a discussion about healthcare. Now, at a broadest level, I want to make three arguments. And one I think is fairly provocative, but I kind of thought Sunday morning, I'm here from Sheffield. I don't want to come and just, I could just give you a very safe speech that probably wouldn't ignite a lot of debate and discussion, but I thought there's not much point. So I'm going to throw out some ideas, not maybe because I believe them myself, but because I think they do at least allow us to unpack certain arguments. So my, my first argument is that actually, democratic politics delivers far more than most people may understand or appreciate in modern life. My second argument, which I think is directly related to healthcare, is that the 21st century will be defined by the politics and management of public expectations. Public expectations are, for me, the root of all relationships in many ways, as they are between a politician, between the governors and the governed, and as they are between a doctor and a patient. Now finally, and this is where I was actually told uh, when I first started saying such terrible things that I wasn't allowed to say it. I wasn't allowed, I shouldn't, it wouldn't be good, but I did and I said it and I'll say it again. I think that actually some parts of society have become almost democratically decadent in the sense that they're very good at expressing their rights, less good at demonstrating their responsibilities as active citizens, as members of a political community. Maybe they no longer appreciate what previous generations fought and went through in order to deliver the public services and political frameworks that people today arguably, possibly, some sections take for granted. Now let me just kind of, I think what's really interesting is that the debates become very parochial and, and just what's really good to kind of put this into perspective, this argument about democratic decadence is a couple of years ago I was sent to Thailand by the Foreign Office as part of their supporting democracy program and although I promise it was nothing to do with me, as soon as my plane landed the capital descended into civil war <laughs> and there was this massive terrible clash between the yellow T-shirts and the red shirts, which were the two main political parties, the more modern, business-based um, part of society against the old, landed, um, uh, established political system, rural poor, yes. And what was interesting there for me, coming from, from Western Europe, was that actually I was locked away in a compound and just meters from where I was sitting, people were having their arms and legs hacked off with machetes because of their political positions and views. What was even more shocking was that when I was taken out of the compound with protection was that most of those bodies, very young people who had arms and limbs ripped off, were still lying on the pavement. There was nothing there to pick them up. There was no healthcare, there were no ambulances, there was nothing. And when I came back into the UK, to hear about the NHS was in crisis again, I kind of thought, wow, 
you know, suddenly everything was put into a very different perspective in my head. So, the second part of my little presentation, discussion, not a lecture, whatever, is to just focus in now a little bit on the politics of public expectations. And here, I want to drill down on this notion of an expectations gap, because I think it's very valuable for understanding a range of different arenas. The expectations gap is, is, is very, very simple. And you might argue that with the amount of resources we have in a society, and let's just take this in relation to healthcare, that the amount of money, time, staff, institutions we have, realistically, we can deliver about this level of services. If we really twist the public sector reforms, we might be able to get more bang for each buck and get it here. The problem is, public expectations are arguably here. And the role of doctors, the role of politicians, is to somehow manage that gap. And what I've often tried to argue is, yes, that you can close that gap in two ways. You can try to throw more money at the issue to increase efficiency and move the bottom bar up. The problem is there's no more money in the kitty, though we can have an argument about that. But at the moment, our political system says that there isn't any more money. So maybe, and maybe this isn't necessarily a bad thing if you can have such a naive dualism, is that what we need to do is maybe have a more mature debate about our expectations of what the state politics can provide in a way of closing that gap from above rather than from below. Now, this is really interesting because this is where the politics come into it because politicians are very, very um, good at building an expectations gap by promising the world when they run for office. Politicians, and I know this from talking to MPs, will often in campaigns promise to do things that actually they know deep down they will not be able to deliver. But the reason they say it is because everybody else within that party system, it's as if winning electoral office becomes almost a bidding war. You know, Sam promises X, I'll promise X plus Y, so Sam equals the bar and says, I can deliver more and more for, for no more money. I can get more bang for your buck. So what we do, we have a bidding war that creates massive inflate inf expectations only post-election for those expectations to come crashing down. Now, you might say, well, why don't politicians just talk the truth? I think that's a pretty good argument. It's something that I do, you know, heaven forbid. Now, I'm sorry, there is a twist in my tail. A twist, or should that be a spike in my tail or something in my tail? Because actually, I think there is a broader issue here that, yes, you know, absolutely politicians are completely liable for over-promising and then under-supplying. But I think there's a broader issue here, and it relates... I could say to, 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 to you lot, the audience, but I mean the public more generally, there was once a famous saying in American politics that the public loves the most the greatest liars and detests those who tell the truth. And I actually think there is an element of truth in that saying, that sometimes I really do believe that the public deep down will probably know that they can't have everything, but yet vote for the person who apparently promises them the world. But this is something we'll discuss. So I think there is this big perception gap, uh, an expectations gap, and it's driven to some extent by the electoral cycle that, that in a sense, forces politicians to over-promise, even though they know they can't supply. 
And I think it's too simple to blame politics and blame politicians. I think there's also a need for a more engaged citizenry that argues back and challenges those politicians and tries to frame a more realistic debate. And I think this is quite interesting, two final issues on this part, is it takes me back to the issue of Matthew Flinders, the explorer. Because in a lot of my work, I use this, this metaphor of a storm. And that in a sense, the storm around politics is raging with blame and attacks and vitriol and heat. So much that actually we've lost somehow the capacity to have a balanced conversation about anything. And so a lot of my work, and, and particularly the, the, my recent book, Defending Politics, is all about trying to calm the storm. It's a book that is just about this size, designed to fit into a Christmas stocking at a very reasonable price. And I think every house should have at least four of these books. And they will be for sale in the foyer, but I wouldn't dare say such a thing. So, the last thing on my expectations gap is that there is also a perception gap, which I think is very positive. Because I am very optimistic about democratic politics. But we need to change, we need to re-engage, we need to reimagine. And the good thing is a perception gap that over and over again, surveys will show that if I go up to an, a man or woman on the street, I nearly said a normal person then, but I, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, that if you go up to a man or a woman on the street and you say, what is the first word that pops into your head when I say politicians, you will get a stock range of answers about, you know, corrupt, self-interested bastards, and a lot worse that I wouldn't even dare say on this stage. However, if you go and ask the same person, have you ever met a politician? Generally, everything changes. Oh, yeah, my MP, she's, she's brilliant. Yeah, my local council was fantastic. I only ever met them once, but they did what I needed. There's a big perception gap between the general view of politics and the specific experience view. And exactly the same, is this, exactly the same with the NHS. If you go up to the public, and again, surveys show this over again, how would you define the state of the NHS? People will generally respond quite negatively with the word crisis in there fairly often. But if you say, well, how would you describe your last direct experience of using and accessing the NHS? Oh, they were brilliant, fantastic. Doctors were superb, nurses were superb, brilliant. So this perception gap is very interesting. Why do we have negative views at a general level when our more direct experiences seem to be far more positive? So let me move on to the final part of my um, thoughts this morning. And, I, and, and this is really where I, I took a lot of sort of uh, ideas and nourishment from yesterday's discussions. I think a big issue to do, and, and, and this relates to the relationship, I think, between politicians and doctors, healthcare professionals. It's all about dealing with uncertainty. And we live in a time where lots of our cherished social structures seem to be under stress. If you just think to recently the dilemmas around the church, the dilemmas around the BBC, the dilemmas around the media, let alone the crises that flowed out of recent political issues, be it the war in Iraq or the um, cash, uh, the uh, MPs' expenses row, that I think we are, the 21st century seems to be a time of increased fluidity where lots of things that gave individuals an understanding of their position in the world, even to the level of their, you know, a stable job, 
a family that lived around you. The sort of anchor points that let us understand our point, place in the, the world, many of them have eroded, or they are eroding. And on this, there's a, this work of Zygmunt Bauman on, on fluidity is very interesting, because I think as individuals, as humans, there is a constant search for clarity and certainty and anchor points from which to get a sense of perspective on the world. And I think this is where medicine really comes in. I'm very interested in the medicalization of many social issues and concerns. For me, the growth in forms of human behavior that have now been diagnosed as forms of illness or issues that can be treated within the social sphere is very interesting because in a sense it, it, it seeks to define or capture what is happening, define it as an illness that may in some senses be curable or treatable, but at least, oh, I always knew there was nothing wrong with little Bertie. He has this illness, this problem that is now somehow captured and defined. It gives people a sense of meaning, maybe even a kind of a simple label on which to hang what is actually a more complex problem. Now, this issue of certainty, I think, relates to how we define. Now, I was very interested it didn't come up, or at least I didn't notice it coming up yesterday, in how do we in society define success and failure? Because if you look at the second half of the 20th century, it's very interesting that I think in many ways, healthcare was clearly defined as being successful if it prolonged life at every turn, wherever possible. And actually, if anybody was to argue that democratic politics has failed, I would only point them towards the growth in expected lifespans that we now have, increased over 30 years in the second half of the 20th century. In a sense, the challenge we have now about uh, an aging population and much longer lifespans could be seen as one of the positive symptoms of democratic politics, that our society, our population, now live longer and generally enjoy much more active and stable lives than those generations that preceded them. But I do think this notion of death and dying and the link with success and failure, as a doctor, you cannot be seen to have failed if somebody has died, because we will all die. And whether actually success might be defined by allowing someone to die rather than saving their life. I don't know. You know more about these issues than I do. But anyway, let me go on to something quite different, but I hope you will bear some relationship. A good friend of mine is Chris Mullin, the former minister and MP, and his diaries are very interesting because politicians are often far more open and honest when they've left office because they're not, no longer reliant on popular support. And he has this notion of what he calls chronic Winger syndrome. That he would do over and over and over again. He would work with his constituents, solving problems, solving problems, solving problems. And yet, whatever happened to the solution of one problem simply opened a vacuum into which three or four new problems would immediately be delivered, often by the same constituents. Part of the bravery of politics that I think we've lost is actually daring to push back some responsibility towards patients, towards the public, towards citizens, or at least being honest that this is a two-way reciprocal relationship. The friends of mine uh, that are GPs in Sheffield, when I've mentioned this chronic Winger syndrome, you know, I see their sort of 
eyes light up and I know they're thinking about probably a small number of patients that are there every Monday morning and when they see the name pop up on their computer their heart sinks at the thought of having to deal with them but again it goes back to politics this notion of simple solutions to complex problems if you spend time in um, an MP's office and an MP's surgery it's very similar in a way to a medical surgery that what you tend to get is a succession of people with incredibly complex issues. Some may be medical, some might be um, social, housing, educational, often the, the people will have complex mental health issues, but they all end up at the MP's surgery, walk in, sit down, and expect the MP to solve their problems. The MP will try their best, and, and it's very interesting now, MPs are often criticised for being little more than glorified social workers. Now, most of the MPs that I know, they love their constituency work. It's the part of their, their role that gives them the most satisfaction. They don't in any way begrudge this succession. I mean, the last time I did a, a, um, a surgery with um, an MP, it was amazing. I, I was truly shocked. The first person that came in was um, uh, an asylum seeker with his family that were living, six of them, in a car, in a car park in a rather unpleasant or not a place in Sheffield. If you've got to live somewhere in a car, I can think of better places to live than this area of Sheffield in which the whole family, including very young children, were living. We tried our best to sort this out, emergency accommodation, and the next person on the list was a woman who came in with her son. Her son was clearly ill. He tried to commit suicide three times in the week. The previous night, he'd put the bread knife through his stomach and the, the woman had brought her son there because she couldn't cope. He was going to kill himself, he wanted to die, and she couldn't, the, the hospital just kept releasing him. And, and it was like from one crisis to another to another, but the MP, the MP in that case was, was fantastic. So it is about this issue of complex issues, there are no simple solutions, and maybe we need to be a bit more grown up about that, which leads me to my penultimate point. One of the great things about politics in this great expect politics is about inspiring hope and faith and passion and belief that things can get better and that we as a society can solve certain pressing social issues. Actually, if we took the, 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 the expectations lifting out of politics, it would become very dry and boring and people would probably walk away in bigger numbers than they are now. The great danger is that you overinflate things to such an extent that, that, that we come to believe politicians to be superman or superwoman. And then we're shocked when they turn out to be like me, you, Sam, everybody else, pretty ordinary with all the sort of frailties that all humans have. And Obama is the classic example of this. He managed with his soaring rhetoric of change and hope to create a situation where almost everyone believed in almost euphoric expectation that Superman had landed and that all these things would change. And he's actually found out that getting into office is far, harder than be far easier than being in office. But I actually am quite glad that it turned out that Obama wasn't Superman. Because I do feel that too many people look to other actors in society to solve their challenges and their issues. Now, I've got no problem with us working together and those actors working together, but it is about... My, what I'm trying to get at here is I think it's too often easy to blame and demonise politicians in the same way it might be too easy to demonise and blame teachers for failing our students and doctors for failing our, our grandparents when in fact we're all in this together, there's no them and us. Politics is all of us like it is all in this room. So my final part, my final issue here, it takes us back to what we were talking yesterday, which is about this notion of imagination, because I think it's absolutely key. What I think we have lost 
as a society is our political imagination to view a different society. We've lost, in a sense, our belief that we can really tackle social issues and make a change. In fact, what I think we've become is there's nothing wrong being sceptical about politics or politicians. You have to be. But I think our, our healthy scepticism has somehow slipped into corrosive cynicism, where we see the bad in everybody now who attempts to stand up and make a difference. We've not helped ourselves in recent years, and here I'm going to talk politics, sorry about this, is that I do think we've allowed our society to become imbued with neoliberal values that emphasise individualism and the market above collectivism and society. And the problem there is now, and I think this relates to why, particularly in terms of demographics, young people tend to have turned their back more on conventional politics than older generations, I'm not saying that they're not interested in politics or they're not active, but just in terms of traditional main voting turnout, membership political parties, the young pe people do seem particularly disenfranchised. And I think that's because they've actually misunderstood what democratic politics is all about. Democratic politics isn't like Amazon. You don't vote for your man or woman and then whatever you've asked for gets delivered in the post the next day. Democratic politics is a very slow burn activity. You, don't, you do not get what you want all of the time, but you get a chance to fight for what you want, and if you lose, you live to fight another day. Now, that doesn't happen in a lot of countries around the world, but many people don't even understand that just being able to go outside and stand up and say whatever you think about local politicians, and most, pe most people will just sort of ignore you, or you, know, you won't disappear in the night, which in many countries is exactly what happens. So, we need to somehow move away from a situation where we see the way to respond to collective actions through in, is through individual choices. It's through the market, it's through nudging. We need to understand, I think, that collective challenges can only be solved through collective responses. And when it comes to orchestrating those collective responses, politics, the state, can play an incredibly positive and healthy role. I'll finish with one little barb. It's far too easy in life and in politics to heckle from the sidelines, to complain about those that have stepped into the arena themselves. What I often say, and actually I've said it to many people who have taken me on and are now councillors or MPs, is that if you really think that politicians are failing and they're not very good and that politics itself is failing, step into the arena. Try and make a difference yourself.